0: Hey, happy 4th of July weekend. Um, I hope you're well and that maybe you've uh, had some opportunity over these uh, days to be with family, maybe blow something up together and sharing some good food. And I pray that you would be joining me uh, this weekend in particular, asking Jesus to continue to heal our land and to bring freedom to everyone in our nation, spiritually, yeah, but in every way that is needed. We need to be a free people. Amen. Speaking of that, uh, you may have heard that in the last days that our state has uh, come out saying that they want our churches to stop singing together. And if you're curious about that, um, well, I have some comments. They're going to be at the very end of this message right before, guess what, we go into worship, which is going to be at the end of our time together today. But right now, we're at the end of the second chapter of Acts, and we're going to be looking together at a single paragraph that paints this amazing picture of the very first followers of Jesus. It tells us not only what they were doing, but who they were becoming as a church. So let's go back and recap what's already been going on in this uh, Acts chapter 2. Because we've seen that there's this incredibly diverse group of people that have been in Jerusalem together to celebrate the Passover. It says that people from over 16 different regions of the world, people with their own languages and customs and cultures, had gathered together. But when God poured out his Holy Spirit on his followers... This huge crowd of diverse people came to check out what was going on. And so Peter jumps up and just begins to proclaim that Jesus, the very one who had been crucified right there in Jerusalem, had been raised from the dead. And that this resurrected God had the power to save. In fact, he said, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so it says about 3,000 people on that one day put their trust in Jesus and were saved. This was the very first church. But remember, these people had no idea what church should look like. What they didn't do is they didn't go out and build a building get chairs and a coffee maker, you know, uh, so we could have church, you know, they didn't create a Facebook page, they didn't make t-shirts saying, hey, we've arrived, come to our church, right? Nobody even would have uh, known what, what a church was. But what these people did do was they figured out how to become a community of believers that represented Jesus really well, not only to each other, but to the world around them. And this community was revolutionary. It was so revolutionary that it actually grew from these first three thousand people to over 2 billion around the world today. So what we're doing is we're going through the book of Acts to discover what these first believers were figuring out as they were becoming the church. Now, if you're new to this thing called church, welcome. I hope this will be wildly informative to you. And for those of you who've been around for a while, what we're doing is we're relearning what it means, what it truly means to be God's church. And perhaps we're even unlearning some things along the way as well. And there's no more powerful place in the book of Acts than right here at the end of chapter two to show us how we can become the church. So we're picking up in verse 42, right after it says that these 3,000 people had put their trust in Jesus. So read along with me. It says, all the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. A deep sense of awe. All the while, praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And I love how it ends here. It says, and each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. Man, what a great thing it is to be the church. And in that very first statement, it says that these early followers of Jesus says that they devoted themselves and it says they devoted themselves to four specific things. Now listen, this idea of devoting oneself has to do with giving, giving oneself like fully, fully to, to something. Where we're just putting our steadfast attention on it. Like our unwavering focus. And of course this speaks to a very deep level of personal commitment. Because you know, you can't devote yourself To too many things. So hopefully, we're choosing to devote ourselves to things that really matter. Like, what are you devoted to? You know, hopefully, you're devoted to your family, to your work, to the care of your body and soul, right? I mean, the really big things in life are what we should be devoting ourselves to. And we find that we run into huge problems when we devote ourselves to the wrong things. You know, have you ever met anyone whose passionate priority was to get as much money into their pockets as they could or to promote their image to the world, you know, or to devote or to devote themselves to personal pleasure? You know what? We can end up pouring our lives into things that will actually destroy us, right? Being devoted to things that are going to bring our destruction rather than blessing, And the more devotion that we give to these things, the greater their destructive control will be over our lives. But guess what? We also create major problems when we fail to devote ourselves to the right things. If I neglect my family, there's going to be a tremendous price to pay. And if I'm not devoted to my health, I mean, I can do irreparable damage pretty quickly. Now, we'd all probably agree that devotion takes a lot of work. Being devoted is never casual. Like, you know, running hot or cold, depending on how I feel in the moment, that's not devotion. If I'm devoted to something, it's a passionate commitment. I'll sacrifice for it, and I'll rearrange other parts of my life for it because of my dedication, I'm devoted. So here in Acts 2, it says that these believers were devoted to four things. The apostles' teaching, fellowship, sharing in meals, and prayer. Now this is a short but a powerful list. So let's talk about it for a few minutes. Now the first and the last things that they devoted themselves to, teaching and prayer, Those are about a devotion that grows one's intimacy with God, right? Teaching, study, and, and prayer, this deep connection to the Lord. That's about growing our intimacy with God. Teaching, what I'm doing right now, it's about discovery. I want to learn everything that I can about who God is, what he's like, what he's promised to me, and the things that he expects of me as well. Now, many believers haven't yet devoted themselves to this pursuit and can be pretty casual about growing in the knowledge of God. Now, listen, if, you, if the primary way you're learning about God is through occasional Instagram posts, well, you may want to go to a friend and say, man, how can I take this area of devotion deeper? Now, uh, And the last one on the list, being devoted to prayer is about growing my soul's connection to God, pouring out my heart to Him, declaring His Lordship over every situation, and sometimes just being silent in His presence, leaning in close so I can learn to recognize His voice and listen to Him. So the first and the last things on this list, teaching and prayer, are about pursuing an intimate relationship with the Lord Himself, but the two things in the middle are about pursuing an, inter- an intimate relationship with others, right? God, teaching, and prayer. But these these middle two things—fellowship and sharing in meals—these these things are about developing this intimate relationship with each other. So let's look at those two. Second and the third. The second thing it says that they were devoted to was fellowship. What is that exactly? Now, in the Greek language, it's the word koinonia. And we've talked about that from time to time as a church because it's, it's really important. It's a very important New Testament uh, principle and idea. And koinonia is way more than just a casual acquaintance. It's much more like a meaningful partnership. This kind of fellowship has its core right at its very core, this commitment to move beyond shallow relationship and into deep communion with each other. And it's characterized here by this word devotion, right? You don't devote yourself to just showing up to a potluck. Hey, how you doing, you know? Can you pass the bag of chips? Yeah, that's not the type of fellowship that they're talking about here. You devote yourselves to fellowship by showing up To support each other. I mean, you're showing up with cash when someone is behind, you're showing up with food when they're hungry, or maybe with an encouraging word when they're discouraged. In fact, it's just a couple of verses later where it says that, and all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. And the word right here used uh, to, to say that they shared everything has the same root word as koinonia. Because it describes this, this unselfish, generous kind of sharing of, of everything that we have. Sharing of our lives and sharing of our, our money, our homes, our, well, everything together. This kind of koinonia fellowship is true community where people are devoted not only to God, but to each other. This is life-changing, life-giving friendship. I love what it says in Proverbs 18.24, when when it was written and said, one who has unreliable friends soon comes to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. That's the kind of a family relationship that the church is to be known for and to be devoted to. Now, when I had cancer surgery several years ago, I'll never forget a close friend, Greg Russinger, showing up early in the morning just to be with me and Kelly. And can I ask you, why are surgeries always scheduled so dang early in the morning? But Greg showed up. And he came to pray with us during our most anxious moments and also to get us to laugh. And we had some uh, good times there in the rooms. And because Greg was there, he got to hear of one of my all-time most infamous lines, something the craziest thing I'd ever said. Because they gave uh, gave me my first round of drugs, not to knock me out completely, uh, but just to kind of settle my nerves, I think, and you know, they, they, you know, as they gave me the drugs, they said, this is going to feel like you've had a couple glasses of wine. Well, I must be a lightweight, uh, because before they rolled me away, you know, I wanted to say something really kind to Kelly, because, you know, it's like, what if I don't make it through the surgery? And so after they gave me this first round of drugs, um, this is what I said. I turned to Kelly, and Greg is standing right there. And I'm like, Kelly, I've loved many women, but I love you the most. Now, what was in my brain when I said that was I was thinking about my daughter, my mom, and Kelly. Well, I love Kelly the most. Yeah, it didn't quite come out that way. And just to let you know, I have loved no other woman in my life like I've loved Kelly. But Greg was there to witness, uh, witness me in all of my glory. And here's something else amazing, that, that during that surgery, another friend, Colleen Mann, drove to the hospital to sit with Kelly through the entire surgery just so that Kelly wouldn't be alone. Listen, that is being devoted to fellowship. It's not just showing up to the parties. It's sticking around through the tears. It's not just about rejoicing with those who rejoice. It's also about mourning with those who mourn. And that's this koinonia level fellowship. The final thing it says that these believers were devoted to was sharing in meals with each other. You say, now that's something I can relate to because I am all about eating. Bring it on. But this area of devotion that sounds really so harmless, right? Like a 4th of July picnic is actually something that is completely countercultural and demands radical transformation in our lives. And it's about way more than just eating. Because sharing in meals forces this question, who are you at the table with? Now, listen, you'll never be in koinonia Koinonia level uh, committed fellowship with someone you won't eat with. And you'll never truly learn from someone that you won't sit with at the table. And you'll never devote yourself to pray with those people That you won't share a meal with. I want you to think about this. In most settings, we only eat with people we know or with others who are like us. I mean, do you remember being in junior high or high school, especially if you are new to the school? Man, I believe that the school lunch hour may be the loneliest time in a person's life. And you'd get your food and you would pray to the cafeteria gods that you'd see someone you knew so you can sit with them. And if you didn't know someone, then hopefully, for all that is good and holy in the world, you know, you'd find someone that you could at least relate to. Someone who is like you. So what happens, right? The cosplay kids, well, they end up sitting with other cosplayers. Soccer players sit with others from the soccer team, and on and on it goes. Listen, we need to realize it is so countercultural to intentionally sit at a table with someone you don't know and who may not be like you at all. And this is exactly where the first church found itself people from completely different backgrounds, locations, cultures, and even languages. That's why they had to be devoted to this Christ-like practice of sharing meals with others who were so different from them. Listen, remember, they didn't have this shared church building like we do to, to run to, you know, where they could have church picnics and barbecues. So they actually invited each other into their homes. That's pretty radical, Because this is what it says in Acts 2.46. It says, they worshiped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and shared their meals with great joy and generosity. I mean, how does this happen? How do you get such diverse people into these kinds of kingdom culture, table-sitting relationships with each other? Well, listen, the Apostle Paul gives us a very personal answer to this question. If you go to the first two chapters in the book of Galatians, Paul here is telling the story of his life. And he's relating that he had been a a pretty terrible person. I mean, he was super religious, but he was so committed to his Jewish heritage that he was actually chasing down Christians to imprison and kill them. And he says this about himself. He says, I was extremely zealous for the traditions of my ancestors. Wow. I mean, what a revealing statement. I mean, he just unzipped and said, yeah, this is what I was all about. I was so about my heritage, so about my traditions that I was willing to even imprison and kill other people because they just weren't part of my tribe. And I felt threatened by that. And I believe that if we're honest with ourselves, there are many who can relate to Paul here. So many seek to find themselves maybe through their family's heritage or history, right? Whether it's their American history. Here we are, 4th of July weekend. Go America, right? But maybe it's their African-American history, which is quite different as, as we're all learning and discovering together. Or maybe it's their Mexican Heritage and so many more. On and on it goes. I'm Colombian. I'm Australian, mate. You know, I'm Argentinian. If you've ever met someone from Argentina, I'm telling you, they are so happy to tell you all about their homeland. And while there is a beauty and importance in keeping traditions and cultures alive, our pursuit of personal heritage can get in the way of a pursuit of Jesus. And I'll tell you, that it certainly was Paul's story. But as Paul continues to, to, to say what his life experience had been as he was uh, relating this to the Galatians, he talks about being called by God to go and minister to people who were absolutely unlike him as a Jew, Because he says that he was actually called to go and bring the good news of Jesus to the Gentiles. Couldn't have been more opposite than he was. And when he's finishing this section in in Galatians, in uh, chapter 2, verse 20, he emphatically states this. He says, My old self has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live But Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So Paul was saying here, my old self, the one who was so passionately committed to my Jewish heritage and traditions, that guy was crucified with Jesus on the cross. So it's no longer... I, who live. You may not even recognize me now because I'm so different. Why? Because it's Jesus who lives in me. It's only the gospel, the good news of Jesus, that makes it possible for diverse people to come together at the same table, to learn together, to pray together, and yes, to eat together not so that we'd lose our personal identity, but so that we can walk in this new commitment to Jesus' style of unity. In fact, in Acts 2, we read that they, they met in their homes not only to share meals together, you know, lunch and breakfast and dinner, but it says that they shared in the Lord's Supper together. So they took the bread. They took bread the wine of communion. And as they broke the bread and shared the cup, what they did is they retold the story of Jesus as they ate. And they were saying, we can sit together in unity because of Jesus and because of the cross. He has set us free from all the baggage. Yeah, even sometimes the baggage of our heritage. Because ethnicity Culture, heritage, history, and language, they all matter, but these are never to come before who we are in Christ. Even on the Fourth of July weekend, where the church remembers this reality and this truth, it is a beautiful thing because it just promotes our unity with each other. But when we as the church forget, tragedy follows. Racism. Hatred. Those are the kinds of things that follow. And yeah, they can even follow us right into who we are as a church. It's happened. And it's happened in church history too many times. And we have to own that. And we have to say, God, I am. I'm wanting to be devoted to you and to others even more than my devotion to my personal heritage. Now, listen, this is important, I believe, for every church. But for us at the Santa Maria Foursquare Church, this is mission critical that we really understand this. Because we're one church with two congregations. We're not an English church. And guess what? We're not a Spanish church either. We are one church united by Jesus. And because of Jesus, we're learning to be devoted to each other and to share in a powerful koinonia-level fellowship of mutual commitment and love for each other. I want to share a a photo. It's a photo I I took of Kelly um, with uh, Pastor Joel Adiola. And this was taken as they were about to drive away from their home. The audiolas were leaving Santa Maria on their way to move to Mexico as our missionaries. Now, if you're listening to this podcast and can't see the picture, it's one of an emotion-filled embrace. Kelly giving her last tearful hug to Joel as he was departing. This picture captures the raw emotion of the moment. And I want to tell you, the mossholders and the audiolas aren't just friends that now happen to be living at a distance. Our commitment to each other has never diminished. The moss holders are committed to the well-being of the audiolists. We're their prayer partners. We're their financial contributors. We are devoted to Joel and Veronica and their kids. And you know what? They're devoted to us as well. There is a covenant between us. Not something that's in writing, it's something much deeper than that, that that actually binds us together by the Spirit of the Lord. And it's what we should experience as the church, because just like those early believers in Acts, we are being called to become a covenant community. And this is one of the great challenges we face when we're not meeting together week to week. Because we could easily slip into becoming casual consumers of religious goods, right? Sitting on our couches, flipping through channels, looking for online church services, right? Until we find one of our liking. Now, sure, you know, that kind of, that kind of thing can tide us over for a bit when it's needed. But it's not being the church. It's not how we become the body of Christ, Why? Because there's there's nothing of devotion there, nothing costly that takes us beyond ourselves to to reach out and love others in order to form a new culture that's founded on Jesus. Listen, we become the church when we have this devotion both to God and to each other. I'm not saying don't check out good ministry, other places, read good books. Man, there's a podcast or two that I listen to just about every week from other ministries that I'm so grateful for. But that's not my church. You are my church, Santa Maria Foursquare. I'm so thankful that together that we can pursue this devoted life with the Lord and with each other. Now listen, isn't it interesting? That the first and the last things that the early church was devoted to had to do with God, right? Teaching and prayer. I'd say that those two things are probably what the world knows most about what churches do. Ah, They get around and they talk about the Bible and they pray. But it's actually the second and third things that they were devoted to, fellowship and sharing in meals together, that were at the heart of who they were becoming as the church. Because I think that first and the, the last thing, right, receiving good teaching and uh, and praying, you know, those are actually fairly easy to do and they're even things that we can do on our own. But it's that second and third thing, fellowship and sharing in meals, sitting at a table to, together with a diverse group of people that is most like the church. We're called to that. Remember what Jesus said, the world's going to know that you're my disciples by your love for each other. That you could love God all you want to on your own, that's fine, but that's not what it means to be the church. Because to be the church, once again, means being devoted both to loving God and your brothers and sisters. So let me finish with this question. What is the result of being part of this kind of covenant community? I love that in Acts 2, right after it talks about their devotion, is this small phrase that I believe captures the beauty of what we should expect when we're living as part of God's church. Because right there in verse 43... It says a deep sense of awe came over them all. I mean, it's like, isn't this awesome? We get to experience the power of the living God transforming lives, including my own. We get to experience the love of Jesus, healing brokenness, cleansing us from shame. And we get to sit at the table with the most beautifully diverse people, and share this unity that is only possible because of the cross. Right? So shouldn't we say like them, isn't this awesome? Listen, if we never experience this kind of awe, I believe that this is really a great opportunity for us to check our devotion. Because, you know, maybe if I slipped into becoming a Christian consumer, or am I devoted to both Jesus and his people. So what can we do right now, this week, to grow our devotion? I want you to think for a moment again about these four things that those first believers were devoted to. Teaching, fellowship, sharing in meals, and prayer. What is the one area there that's the easiest for you to dive into? Go for it. Do it. I mean, throw gas on that fire and burn bright. It's going to do nothing more than just help you continue growing. But I also want to ask you this. What's the most challenging area of devotion for you? Why not this week you take a step to grow in that area that's of greatest challenge? Maybe check in with a friend and become accountable to new areas of growth and devotion in this area. Hey, let's pray together. Would you join me now? God, we're so grateful, Father, for your calling, not only personally, but collectively and in community as a church. Lord, we never want to be consumers of your grace. Lord, we want to learn to become this countercultural, radical. Koinonia-level church family. And God, thank you, Lord, for going to the cross. Lord, thank you that even as we saw that they would take the, the Lord's Supper together, take the bread and the cup, and as they would share that they, they would be reminded of, of your shed blood for us, your broken body for us, because it's only because of the cross Lord, that we can have hope to be free from our sin and move beyond ourselves into this deep level of covenant community with each other. And listen, friend, if if you're there and if you're not someone who's ever put your trust in Jesus, you can do it right now. You can just simply come before the Lord and say, God, I give you all of myself, all the good stuff, but all the bad stuff. All my sin, Lord, I give it to you, and I ask that you would just forgive me and, and cleanse me. And he promises, if you call out to him, you will be saved. So do that now. And can I just say, welcome to God's church. and you're so loved, and I am glad that you can become part of us right now online, but pretty soon, even gathering together again as the congregation, the Santa Maria Foursquare Church, will be so glad to greet you and meet you soon. Hey, church! One of the things that we do is 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 we uh, do just what that church did in uh, Acts chapter two. It says that they were generous, and and I want to thank you for those of you that have been financially generous to the church, and especially in this last season. We're doing pretty well. Uh, I think there's some room where we could even do uh, better in our generosity. So don't stop. Keep it going, church. I, I so appreciate that. And it allows us, of course, to continue this kind of ministry and, and so many others to those around us. But listen, our giving, our generosity shouldn't stop at our own, right, in our own church walls. And I've mentioned the Audiolis. And over the last weeks, you know, we've talked about their food ministry happening um, right there on the streets of Playa del Carmen, Mexico and Southern Mexico, where there's just such need. And, and I want to report to you that we've had over $5,000 that have come in um, through our church that have gone right to Southern Mexico to help people during this time of, of global pandemic and crisis. And so thank you for doing that. But here's what I want to remind you. They just don't need help with a food ministry. The audioles need ongoing financial support, right? When when this crisis is over, right, their their ministry isn't over. They're pastoring and serving the Foursquare Church and Playa del Carmen and getting into their community and doing outreaches. So they need your ongoing support. So as we say each week, it's pretty easy to give. And, and you can, of course, send in a check if, if you want to send it in, just regular tithes and offerings. And we're going to be grateful for that. And we'll put that right to the use of our church here in Santa Maria. But if you want your support to help with this food ministry, then if you're writing a check, just go to, uh, to the memo line and, and put food for Mexico um, in that line. And we're going to make sure every penny of it gets, gets utilized that way. But if you want to join Kelly and I and many others in giving to the ongoing financial support of the audiolas who are serving in southern Mexico, then write audiolas, or if you can't spell that, just put Mexico in the memo line of a check. And of course, if you're giving online, it's really easy to do. We use a system called PushPay, and you can go there right now if you just want to Text SM4 on your phone. Text SM4 to 77977. Man, it'll take you to a little interface where you're going to see how you can uh, give. There's a little drop down menu. You can give to the church. You can give to uh, the audio list in Mexico. Or if you want to give to the food, their food ministry, then, then you can use, use that, that line that says special. That special giving line, um, all of the, fun, uh, the, the funds that come in through that, through the end of July, are going to go to Playa del Carmen to help with that food ministry. Thank you for being generous. So appreciated, church. Now listen, I, I told you that, that I was going to make some comments about singing because, you know, probably this last week you've heard or seen somebody post something on Instagram about, about our worship through song as a congregation and, and because California has asked us to stop singing in church. Lots of people have lots of opinions about this, right? I've been seeing all kinds of things posted and and written and, and, uh, you know, people using this scripture or that scripture to say why we should keep singing in church. Well, right now we're meeting online. And we're going to do this for this next season, at least through the end of uh, the month. We're going to be continuing to meet online. We feel that that's the best thing for our church family uh, to stop the spread of of disease. And that is particularly ravaging Latino populations in um, America and even in our community. And we want to stand in support of the Latino population in Santa Maria, and probably the the strongest way that we can do that right now, more than masks, is by not meeting together, um, you know, all in one big room. Uh, so we're we're committed to doing that for right now, as long as it takes. But you know, perhaps in in August we may meet, uh, begin meeting together. But what about singing? So singing, as you probably know, has been scientifically shown to increase the potential for the spread of sickness. Why? Because as we sing, well, we spit more, right? And so uh, we know that, uh, that that's a reality. It's a scientific fact. So to be smart and loving, right, it probably makes sense to not go into a setting where you're going to be singing, Right? If baseball was happening right now, they would probably tell everybody in baseball games, no singing, take me out to the ball game." Right? They would just skip that part of the seventh inning stretch. And as churches are meeting, they're being asked to stop singing right now congregationally. But I want you to remember this as well. Guess what? Worship is never just about music. It is never just about song. Worship is our full life response to Jesus. Yes, worship does take the form of song on many occasions and it's of course is biblical, but our spoken praise, even our financial gifts, our ministry to the neighbors around us, these are all forms of worship. So this right now that we're in is, is a chance for us to practice other forms of worship in this season right? Sometimes we may even become too comfortable on someone else leading us into worship. And now here's our opportunity to build our worship muscles and stretch our faith in ways that don't always include a built-in melody, right? Everyone sing along. But here's the last thing before we go to worship together, is that no one can ever stop you from worshiping, and no one can ever stop you from singing. Not ever. Our state right now is asking us to not sing together congregationally, right? We're going to do that to prevent the spread of the coronavirus. In fact, we were, we've been talking as a staff about getting together to host another time of worship, and, and we're going to just, we're going to skip that during July. We're not going to do that during the month of July, so guess what we're going to do? We're going to sing in our cars. We're going to sing in our showers. We're going to sing in our living rooms like we're going to do right now. So sing passionately as you can do it safely. We're not going to spread the virus. We're going to spread our love for Jesus through song.